Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. When you go into a gallery, you go into a museum and you look at a painting, you don't know what the story is behind the painting. It's like seeing somebody in the street who's an old man. You don't know all the adventures he's had and all the marriages he's had and all the divorces he's had. My name's Aaron Richard Golub. I'm an attorney uh, licensed to practice law in the state of New York. My concentration is art world issues. I had a case years ago involving a portrait of Paloma Picasso by Picasso, and there were two precisely the same portraits of Picasso's daughter, one owned by a dealer in Spain and one owned by a collector in Switzerland. They were identical. Claude Picasso came over to the gallery and unpacked the painting that Gagosian was about to show in a Picasso show, and Claude said, well, the nails are rusted tacked the canvas to the stretcher on this painting and on the other painting the nails are not rusted and that was his basis of saying that one picture was a counterfeit and the other picture was not. I don't think that's a basis to determine authenticity. Authenticity can fall under the general rubric of fraud but authenticity is a world in and of itself where a painting has been counterfeited. Somebody has made a painting and claims it's by a certain artist in that style of the artist. And in fact, that artist never made that painting. Now, if somebody sells you that painting and claims that that painting is by Matisse or it's by Warhol and it's not, that's fraud, but it's actually really counterfeit is what you're going to have to prove. People are always fooling everybody in the art world. It's a place where that game is played by everybody. Ann Friedman would never have imagined growing up to be the most notorious dealer of the New York art market. She might have been an art professor, perhaps. But as her career blossomed and she came to see just how good she was at selling art, being a dealer suited her quite well. And not just a run-of-the-mill dealer, to be sure, but one of distinction, helping artists and collectors she loved. She was born Anne Louise Fertig in the early 1950s in Scarsdale, a wealthy bedroom community north of New York City. Her father was a vice president of a commercial real estate company called Williams & Company. 
Perhaps not by chance Anne would marry a commercial real estate executive herself, Robert Lawrence Friedman. Real men, Anne told one of her staffers, worked in commercial, not residential real estate. Two people in Anne Friedman's life would play an instrumental role in inspiring her art career. The first was her mother, Hilda Fertig, who first brought Anne to New York City's art museums as a child. The other was H.W. Jansen, the legendary author of The History of Art, the standard text for millions of students around the world. Jansen was a Russian émigré through the 1940s. He taught at Washington University in St. Louis and helped expand the breadth of the school's art collection. He left a legacy for generations of students to admire, though not without controversy. Not a single female artist was described in his epic tome. Anne Friedman would become one of those captivated new students upon her own arrival at Washington University in the late 1960s, earning a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. In the summer of 1971, when Anne graduated, finding gainful employment wasn't easy. New York was on the verge of a nasty recession. Somehow, Anne managed to reach Robert Miller, a senior director of the Emmerich Gallery on 57th Street, and talked him into granting her a job interview. Whatever she said at the meeting, it worked. Friedman began working as a receptionist at the Emmerich and immersed herself in the color field painters for which it was known. Abstract expressionists of a softer school, like Morris Lewis and Helen Frankenthaler, with their broad washes of color as opposed to the bold, almost brutal strokes of the action painters like Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning. Here's writer Michael Schneerson. Anne's starting salary was $5,000 a year, or $100 a week. It was typical pay for newcomers in a world where wealthy parents were expected to do their part. Eager and perhaps somewhat desperate, Anne began overstepping her lowly tasks and started actually selling art, and she was successful. So much so that her boss was thunderstruck, as Anne said herself in one of my interviews with her for Vanity Fair. She said Andre started seeing more and more invoices on his desk than he ever could have imagined. There was a sense of some disbelief, if not resentment. No one paved the way for me to sell, but I sought out the opportunity, and I never looked back. Her personal life was blossoming as well. Anne would marry her fiancé, Robert Friedman, on Christmas Day, 1972. A Long Island rabbi, Jack Stern, performed the ceremony at Manhattan's Regency Hotel. Anne and Robert would have a daughter, Jessica, and move to an apartment on East 72nd Street, where they still live. Despite her early successes, both personally and professionally, it would be fair to say that Anne wasn't embraced by her colleagues at the Emmerich Gallery. She glowed with ambition and showed little interest in making new friends. Rumor had it that one of Anne's colleagues threw a typewriter at her. Another time, the owner of the gallery, Andre Emmerich, returned to New York from a trip to London with little gifts for his staffers. Emmerich announced that his gift to Anne was a Rolls Royce. Supposedly, she raced to the window to see if there was a real one parked on the street. Those were the kinds of expectations she had, the staffer said. It was, of course, a little toy. 
She was very ambitious. People at the gallery hated her, Emmerich's widow Suzanne said. The gallery's registrar once wrote to owner Andre Emmerich about Anne and how she behaved when he was gone. She was vicious, the registrar fumed. While Anne was rising at Emmerich, another young, ambitious staffer was a step ahead of her at the Nodler Gallery. Leslie Feely came to Nodler in 1971 with the legendary dealer Larry Rubin when the Armand Hammer era of Nodler ownership began. By this time, the Nodler was no longer the most venerable gallery in New York. Those days were long gone by 1971. The gallery had slumped to a third-rate institution with artists like Leroy Neiman, who was most well-known for depicting bright, splashy sports scenes with crowd-pleasing speed. The longtime dealer Richard Feigen famously said that Armand Hammer bought a cadaver when he bought the Nodler. As Leslie Feely recalled, the Nodler had no contemporary art at that point in the early 1970s. I never thought of Nodler. I don't think it was active. Armand Hammer needed a dealer who could help bring prestige and clients back to Nodler. In Larry Rubin, he'd found his man. Starting with the brilliant Frank Stella and Kenneth Noland, Rubin was proving his value to Nodler and Armand Hammer right away. He also brought in Richard Diebenkorn, the great abstract landscape painter. That's why he signed up Larry for the artist. Leslie Feely and Larry came in together. That's Joe Stevens. Joe was the Nodler's art handler. My main job was I was the shipping manager and the head preparator of all the artwork and hanging shows. Leslie was Larry's partner, assistant. She was on a higher level. She sold artwork. Leslie worked at Nodler for nearly half a decade until she left abruptly in 1977. As Leslie said, Armand Hammer didn't keep his word with her. He'd offered to up her compensation for artwork sold. She said yes on a Friday. On Monday, he came back and said, I'm sorry, I can't give you that deal. With that, Leslie left to become an independent dealer on her own. I opened a gallery when Frank Gehry built a gallery for me. I mean, he was my architect. He's a terrific friend, I think a great architect. And it was a very beautiful gallery on 68th and Madison. That was when Anne became Larry Rubin's right hand, taking Leslie's place. And then Anne Friedman came in, and the changes were happening. She was the receptionist, very knowledgeable woman. You know, she knew her stuff, and she had that, I always called it the gift of gab. She was an incredible talker. What change did you observe? Well, I seen Anne move up. You know, she went move right up, she got out, and she wound up getting her own office, and she started selling artwork. Often vying for paintings with her from outside the gallery, Leslie would come to know Anne Friedman's style of business all too well. Almost from the beginning, it sounds like you got a sense of this woman not only as abrasive and uh, difficult and unpleasant, but someone who was, you know, willing to do anything to make a profit. Absolutely. It was in the fall of 1977 when Leslie left the Nodler, with an eager Anne Friedman stepping in to take her place. 
After her departure, Leslie's dealings with Larry Rubin on works by the artist Richard Diebenkorn came from outside the gallery. The work was beautiful. Anyone could see that. But the heat of Diebenkorn's market was also due to the way he worked. He would produce dozens of Ocean Park paintings and drawings, then send them in one great clump to Nodler. Dealer Larry Rubin would earmark new paintings for his favorite clients, many of them dealers themselves. Leslie Feely was lucky enough to be on that list. To Anne's intense irritation, there was nothing she could do to keep Larry from allocating a Diebenkorn to Leslie when one of those batches of new work came in. I think I bought a Diebenkorn in every Diebenkorn show. I was still friendly with Larry, mm -hmm. which was good, and I was friendly with the Diebenkorns, and I loved his work, and it was so exciting for me to buy one. One staffer at Nodler said that opening those Diebenkorn shipments was like opening presents on Christmas morning. The paintings would be all lined up. These were the days when an ocean park cost maybe eighteen to $20,000. Larry would let Ann Friedman have first pick. The staffer later said to Larry, why let Ann have first choice? Because, Reuben said with a laugh, I know she'll pick the worst one. Would she be buying Diebenkorn's as well? Well, she must have. I don't think she had a particularly good relationship with the artist or the wife or the children who were, you know, who ended up managing the estate. Soon enough, to the shock of the gallery staff, Anne acquired the title of Head of Contemporary Art Sales. She felt she'd paid her dues as the front receptionist and demanded a position of greater distinction. The title was quite a leap, perhaps, but her sales skills were being noticed. She was known as the Rainmaker. That's artist Michael David. Michael came to Nodler as a client of the gallery in 1983. A collector introduced my work to Anne, and then Anne and Larry came to the studio. There was this desire to find young artists at that point, and I think that Larry liked me not so much for the work at that point, but because of the way I spoke and the speed of my speaking reminded him of Frank Stella. I know that there was a, a hierarchy of floors. You go past that red velvet rope, and then there'd be one floor, and then it would be Anne's office, and then Larry's office. And Larry would focus more on the higher-end blue chip, and Anne would do more of the volume selling. That was my impression. Joe Stevens remembers what it was like handling art for private meetings with Anne's clients at Nodler. She had a huge supply of artwork in her office. It was always painted and taken care of. And, you know, she had six French windows overlooking 70th Street. She had a big, huge office. You know, she had a couch in front of it, sat down with the clients. Very convenient and well done. You know, it was always a, very clean and immaculate. And we used to come up, and, you know, you have to, two people have to pull out one of these big mother wells, you mm -hmm, know. So, sure. You know, put it right back and pull out at others. It was kind of really cool to do that because... I'm listening to how what they're paying for these things, and I'm going, you know, God, I, I, it was incredible amounts of money that these people paid for. Here's artist Michael David again. There was also a thing at Nodler, it was always that, you know, we don't sell work, we place work. And, you know, we'll always take the work back. 
Was it true? Could you decide you didn't like Estella and bring it back and get your money back? I don't think that you get your money back. I think they would make efforts to sell it for you. Interestingly, in my Vanity Fair story, Michael David had described Anne rather more sharply. He said she wasn't someone you wanted to play poker with or someone you wanted to cross. She's a complicated person. She was great at what she did. I never saw evidence of her being unethical. She had an edge. She took no prisoners. And she could be vindictive. I think for her, it was always about making it rain. I think that was how she defined herself. That may have been a fatal flaw that led her not to be as mindful as she should have been. But at some point, after the Vanity Fair story appeared, Anne had taken Michael David to lunch more than once and conveyed how hurt she had been to be called vindictive. And so David's portrait of her had softened over the years. For Nodler's artists like Michael David, art was never anything less than a business. But how did the money change hands between the buyer, the seller, and the artist? That's after the break. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. The financial arrangement between Nodler and its artists seemed simple enough on the surface. Everything was on paper before computers, recalled one staffer. If the price for a painting just sold was, say, $100,000, then the standard split on paintings sold was 50-50. 50% for the artist and 50% for the gallery. But at Nodler, there was a category called Report to Artist. Instead of being recorded as a sale for $100,000, the report to artist would show the sale as, say, $96,000. When the 50-50 split was made, the artist got 50% of $96,000, not of $100,000. It wasn't a big reduction for the artist. In fact, it was so small that most of the artists were probably perfectly happy pocketing their 50% of the report to artists that they failed to question the gallery's accounting methods. The staffer, a new arrival at the time, questioned one or two people about the practice. To her, it seemed unsavory, a red flag, as she put it. But she felt if she pushed too far, she'd put her job in jeopardy. Donald Sultan, one of the Nodler Gallery's younger artists at the time, confirmed that Anne kept two separate sets of books. Sultan said she told people she sold an artwork for X, but she actually sold it for X plus Y. Either she or the gallery kept the difference. 
Another delicate matter at Nodler was the upstairs presence of an accountant, Dr. Maury Leibovitz, who ran a much larger operation. He oversaw not just the Nodler, but also the very commercial Hammer Gallery, situated on Park Avenue just above 57th Street, which the Hammer family had bought some time before. He was a shadowy figure, the staffer said of Maury. You were not allowed to even mention his presence because they didn't want anyone to know the two galleries were run together. Why? Because while the Nodlers sold art of impeccable quality to wealthy collectors, the Hammer Gallery over on Park Avenue sold tacky artists like Leroy Neiman with his highly commercial sports scenes. To Larry Rubin and the rest of Nodler, Neiman was an embarrassment. In spite of this, Neiman was the biggest earner for the two galleries combined, and his profits helped prop up the gallery's bottom line. There was nothing illegal about this. It was just a way of disguising the gallery's finances. The Nodler would disguise its finances later on, too, in a much different and very illegal way. By the 1980s, Anne had become a fixture at Nodler, selling far more than anyone else at the gallery, and thus accruing more power as she did. One former staffer recalls Anne saying, I could have sold catalogs, but I chose to sell art. Perhaps she was being facetious, but to the staffer, it sort of rang true. When I used to go to the Nodler Gallery, which I did on every trip to New York, to see Larry, perhaps to buy something or, you know, just have lunch, mm. whatever. Ann Friedman's office was not an office. It was a desk in the showroom mm. where they had their paintings in racks. She would be right there. That's John Bergruen, whose San Francisco gallery remains a bastion of the art business more than half a century since he opened it on Grant Avenue. Ann Friedman was always, as far as I'm concerned, a controversial person. You know, I don't. I often wondered how Larry dealt with her on a day-to-day basis. What was striking about her presence? The fact that the fact that she was even there, yeah. in a way. But what was her style? Well, she was aggressive. Another former staffer took a slightly softer view. She was demanding, but not totally unfair. She was like that type in The Devil Wears Prada. That was Anne. You never felt close to her, the staffer added. There's an almost masculine quality, hard to read. She was tough, and a lot of people ended up not liking her. The Nodler's longtime manager and art handler, Joe Stevens, once stopped at her desk in the late 1980s after hours when she was gone. His eyes widened. There was Anne's latest paycheck. I was June, and she was already made... $370,000. It was June, and she had already made... three seventy-five dollars For the year so far. So far. Boy, that's a lot of money in the late 80s. That's what I found out. These were the go-go years in the contemporary art market. Dealers like Leo Castelli and Mary Boone were selling big, bold canvases of artists like Julian Schnabel and Eric Fischel along with David Sally and Ross Blechner. Abstract art was out, along with minimalist art. Figurative art was back in with a vengeance. The 
The Nodler wasn't quite at the heart of all this. Once again, it was selling the art no longer quite of its day. Under Larry Rubin, however, it did well enough. When Larry was the head of the gallery, we weren't in trouble for money. It was, it was a name. Armand Hammer died in 1990, leaving his grandson Michael as chairman of Nodler, as well as head of the Tacky Hammer Gallery on Park Avenue. Michael Hammer was an elusive figure, known mostly for his born-again evangelical zeal, his deep affinity for tanning machines, and later for his two dozen or so vintage automobiles. But he was smart enough to let Larry Rubin keep running the Nodler Gallery. And though the whole art market suffered a major recession in the early 1990s, with galleries closing right and left, Nodler survived. Due in combination to the revenues from the Hammer Gallery and blue-chip artists who stayed loyal to Larry Rubin. What Michael Hammer failed to sense, however, was that Anne was no longer a docile salesperson for Nodler. She felt she was the one keeping the gallery afloat. The major sales were hers, and yet the gallery wasn't giving her the credit she felt she deserved. The more underappreciated she felt, the more resentment she radiated. It was about that time, in the early 1990s, that Larry Rubin started planning his exit. I didn't understand him leaving the gallery, but he missed Europe. He had a house in the south of France, and then he had the house in Italy. He wanted to semi-retire. Joe Stevens recalls Larry's departure. I knew something was wrong. Now, I didn't know if it was because the gallery was taken over by Michael. I couldn't figure it out. Ruben wanted a life of European travel, yet he still wanted to retain control of the gallery. He would manage to do just that by bringing in a successor, one who reported directly to him. This was an expert in multiples named Donald Saff. Multiples mean any art made in more than one copy. Usually it's a numbered and signed edition. Lithographs are multiples, for example, so are engravings, which were part of the origins of Nodler back in the 1840s. Donald Saff had done multiples for the great pop artist Roy Lichtenstein, and the two had grown close. It was a good chance that Saff might get Lichtenstein to join the Nodler Gallery. Larry Rubin thought he had talked Michael Hammer into adopting this plan. Larry would direct the gallery from Italy, where he had a country home, and Larry and Donald Saff would run it together. And Friedman would be the hard-driving salesperson. I'm sure at that point he, she was saying, I'm making all the sales, he's not doing anything, you don't need him, mm-hmm. you'll do just as many sales. Which was probably true, Which, in a sense. Yeah, no, no, but she had no connections to get Lichtenstein or Rauschenberg. The other guy had better connections. Donald Saff did. Yeah. Yeah. And so even though Nodler didn't yet have uh, Rauschenberg or um, Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein, there was a, a hope of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. there was no hope if, if Anne no. was the head of the gallery. No. She didn't know any of these no. artists. No. I mean, what, what sort of self-delusion? You've called it. The news of Larry's retirement and Saf's imminent arrival in the fall of 1994 infuriated Anne. 
Later, she said she just wanted to know what Don Sass' role would be. That seemed to cause a problem, as Anne put it dryly to me. She wanted more than that. She wanted to know why she shouldn't be made director of the gallery after 17 years when she was the one who sold the art and shored up the company's bottom line. Like a heat-seeking missile, Anne shot into Michael Hammer's office on a mid-November day in 1994 and took him on directly. She could do everything Reuben and Saf could do, she pointed out to Hammer. She could cultivate new artists, organize their shows, and run the business. At the same time, she would sell a lot more art than Reuben or Saf put together. Why not let her run the gallery, with Michael Hammer's help, of course, and send the old men packing? Anne must have been persuasive, because Michael Hammer changed his mind on the spot and gave her the job. He did that even though Saf had just been formally hired as co-director and was sent a letter detailing the terms of his employment. According to Saf's lawyer, the letter was signed by Saf and sent back to Nodler to be countersigned. It was sitting in an inbox at the Nodler when Hammer changed his mind and seized it. Saf's lawyers accused Hammer of breaching an oral agreement, but the charge went nowhere. There would be no more talk of Saf and Reuben as co-directors. There would be just one director, Anne Friedman. We'll be back in a minute. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Anne's new title seemed to assure her great success, but Leslie Feely sensed the story would turn out badly, if only because of Anne's temperament. She was not a people person. She would try to, you know, sway people, gush over people, but a lot of people didn't go for her. One collecting couple who resisted her charms was the Meyerhoffs. Wonderful, fabulous collectors. According to one person... In Baltimore. They would have nothing to do with Anne. A lot of people had that reaction. Yeah. Like me. Yeah, yeah. whether collectors or dealers. Anything. So interesting that she should... You get know, the job. ...alienated them all and yet still get this job. So, well, thanks to Michael Hammer, I guess. Right. So the amazing thing to me about this story at this point is that, you know, Anne gets her wish and be careful what you wish for because now there's no one to guide her and to keep her from making truly calamitous decisions. Making a calamitous... I don't... I think she wanted to make more money so she didn't care how she did it. I mean, don't you think it was in her blood? She wasn't making enough money to carry the gallery. And now that she had gotten this job and this power... And, and pushed aside any chance of these other artists coming in, also having artists leave because of her, Diebenkorn, gone. Wow, when did that happen? Oh, I think right away. I think she was pushed out of 
Stephen Korn right away because they never liked her. Joe Stevens got an earful of Larry Rubin's fury as Stevens drove Larry across town that day. We were coming back from Frank Stella's studio, and he got a call. It might have been the Treasury. He spoke to him, and he goes, that fucking c And now he's boiling. He wants to kill him. He says, what the f Are you fucking kidding me? And he just ranted and raved. So he says, I says, Larry, what's going on? And, you know, he, he says, that bitch. <laughs> and, but he didn't go into it. He just says, nah, you'll, you'll hear about it soon enough. So I had said to him, I says, Larry, do I have to get another job? He says, I don't know, Joe. He says, things are happening right now. I don't know. He didn't spe specify, like, say, if you get along with Ann, you'll be around for a while, you know? But he was absolutely furious. And within a month, he was gone. Anne had seized power in the last ticking moments she had while that letter from Donald Saff lay in Michael Hammer's inbox. With that move, she changed the course of her life and ultimately the Nodler galleries too. But it came with a drawback. The problem was that the art market of the early to mid-1990s was terrible. Like all her rivals, Anne needed top quality art to sell. It wasn't so easy to find, especially for a dealer who lacked a lifetime of friendships with famous artists. Anne's predicament was actually worse than it seemed. Her harsh personality and the swiftness with which she'd grabbed her prize had alienated many of the gallery's living artists, along with the estates that represented deceased ones. The Adolf Gottlieb Foundation was alarmed. So was the David Smith Foundation, the Robert Motherwell Foundation, and the Richard Diebenkorn Foundation. Upon Anne's coup, they all left the gallery. Joe Stevens recalls Anne's rise to leadership with mixed feelings. She became an officer of the company. You know, she became like a vice president. So she changed. You know, she had authority. To me, she just became bitchy because she knew who she was. She sold a lot of artwork. She was a big-time salesperson. I had really good working with her in the very beginning. And then she became the boss. She never really said nothing much to me in the beginning because she knew I knew my job. I, would do, I took care of every, I took care of everything that had to be taken care of. I was a top sergeant in that place. Anything physical, I took care of it. The building, everything. If a window cracked, I had to have it fixed. The air conditioning, I did it all. But my main job was I was the shipping manager and the head preparator of all the artwork. I don't care if you're the president of the company. I deserve respect. I take care of this whole gallery from the minute it opens till the minute it closes. And I handle all the artwork, every bit of it. In that capacity, there was a lot that Joe would see as the gallery began to sink and money became an issue. 
Even as Anne began wielding her new power as Nodler's director, sales were plummeting. Anne's aggressive and ruthless tactics had pushed away the gallery's best clients, and the staff were turning against her. Anne Friedman was now totally on her own to decide which artists to promote and sell. Her standards became the gallery's standards. Her eagerness to close these deals conveyed a clear message. Sell, 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 no matter what. This guy, I think his name was Bud Yorkin. He used to be a director of, like, Bewitched. He bought this Pollock. Now, if you remember, Michael, do you go back when Cartier was sending out empty packages so people don't have to pay taxes? Absolutely. Okay, here's the scam that Joe is referring to. In 1985, Cartier, the world-famous jewelry brand, was helping its customers evade sales tax. At the time, those taxes in New York City were 8.25%. Out-of-state buyers were exempt from those taxes. So the scam was, when a customer came in and purchased an expensive item, Cartier would ship an empty box to a bogus address, and the customer would walk out of the store with their merchandise. And it worked for a while. Time magazine reported in April 1985 that at least $260,000 in taxes went unpaid on 125 sales over three years. Similar scams at the time were estimated to have cost New York state and local governments more than $100 million in tax revenue annually. Well, this guy here had to go and deliver this painting to Kauai, Hawaii. I did. I jumped on a plane in Newark, flew nonstop to Honolulu, got in another plane and flew to Kauai and delivered it. Took me 17 hours. Seven million dollars. You know why? Because he saved $480,000 in taxes. Wow. By me delivering it. Was your sense that that was commonplace at Nodler? No. I did it once. And I said, I'll never do it again. In the aftermath of Larry Rubin's departure, the changes at Nodler were profound. With the gallery still struggling through tough times, Anne became more demanding and sharp-tongued, even imperious. Even Michael Hammer, the gallery's owner, seemed to defer to Anne more often than not. Anne was always screaming at everybody, one staffer recalled, always screaming for Jaime Andrade, her assistant, If she didn't have the right pen, she would call to Jaime to get her more. Anne's personal assistants came and went in dizzying succession. If you unwrapped her sandwich, she wouldn't eat it, says one former assistant. If you answered the phone in the wrong way, she would pounce on you. One woman was fired after three days for having too strong an Eastern European accent, a staffer recalled. Another lasted two weeks for being too young and inexperienced. So the next assistant they hired was older, in her 40s. She was fired after a few months because Anne seemed threatened by her. One staffer recalls that she and her colleagues kept a list of all the assistants who came and went during the years she was there. As she said, if you made it past the hazing rituals, you became part of this dysfunctional family. The most memorable of that long line of the demoralized was a fragile southerner straight out of a Tennessee Williams play. Anne would call her five or six times a day, one staffer recalled. They would be crying and screaming. 
Anne Friedman's Nodler Gallery was in free fall. Help would come not long after Anne's ascension at a Soho art gallery opening. Surprisingly, in the form of a demure Mexican art dealer in her mid-forties named Glafira Rosales. Anne had never met Glafira Rosales. And upon learning that she had something to do with a gallery in Great Neck, Long Island, she might have given the woman a pained smile and moved on. But Rosales had sailed up to Anne on the arm of the Nodler's own Jaime Andrade, and so Anne was intrigued. From such a casual meeting, the whole art market would be seismically altered, leaving the Nodler itself devastated and ultimately doomed. Depending on who you asked, Jaime Andrade was either a long, trusted employee of the gallery, harmless and endearing, or an agent provocateur, who saw a way to put Anne Friedman together with Glafira Rosales, ensuring that all three of them would profit from their endeavors. Oh, please. That's not a connection. I mean, that's just trying to push the guilt onto this poor, uneducated, sweet man. It has nothing to do with... I mean, Anne would say that, of course, but I take your point. I mean, it sounds like she was just... Just naming someone else besides her. Okay, he introduced her? So, what? And she made the judgment. She. That's right. Uh, that's she right. just... Nothing else. I mean, it was totally her call. Next time on Art Fraud. She swears that she didn't know, which seems... Hard to believe. Should she have known? Yeah. I believe from the beginning she knew these were fakes. They had no provenances. She made up provenances every day. Art Fraud is brought to you by iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. Our executive producers are Matt Del Piano, Keegan Rosenberger, Andy Turner, myself, and Michael Schneerson. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed this episode. Lindsay Hoffman is our managing producer. Our writer is Michael Schneerson. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.